morning. How's your week so far? Thank you. We, we had a crazy week. Uh, as you know, the school is over. So um, the once peaceful and quiet house is now joyful. <laughs> and I understand you guys who have kids, you know what I mean. Um, we're approaching, uh, this is the almost the middle of July, we're approaching, sorry, this is the middle of June, we're approaching July. And uh, in July, the first week of July, we will be going to Kentucky to see the Noah's Ark, finally. So today is the last day of registration and confirmation. If you haven't confirmed yet, um, you'll have to talk to the guys who are uh, in charge of registration. And if you haven't paid yet, I would encourage you to, uh, to pay so that we can finally uh, get over the preparation. Having said that, uh, last week we talked about boundaries. Uh, we're still in the series. It's called God's Plan, His Kingdom, and Its Boundaries. But last week we talked about boundaries. We said that sometimes boundaries can be an excuse where we don't step out of our boundaries because we don't want to meddle with anybody else's uh, issues in life. We want to be, you want to keep it private. But that privacy um, stops us from reaching out to other, to other people. And sometimes it, it's an, a disadvantage to us, to our faith. And we said that boundaries are put specifically in place so that we can respect each other, but it should not be an excuse to reach out to other people. Today, I want to talk to you about inheritance. Who among you received an inheritance? No one else. No one else. Okay, cool. Cool. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> okay. All right, cool. So based from the scriptures, the question is, what does it mean for Israel to receive an inheritance? Because the kingdom of God is about inheritance. And what does it mean to keep them? And for us, how does it look like if we receive an inheritance, and how are we going to keep that inheritance? Um, when we were growing up in the, in, me in the 80s and probably you in the 70s and 60s, we grew up with the Spider-Man. Spider-Man, before it was adapted to film, it was well, with the comic, uh, Marvel Comics. But in the film, Uncle Ben, the uncle of uh, Peter Parker, this uh, Spider-Man, confronted Peter because he apparently fought with a school bully. So Uncle Ben confronted Peter and in this famous line that he became very known for, he said, with great power comes great responsibilities. All right, you know that. You know that. We read that from the comics. We saw that from the film. Now, after that, unexpectedly, Uncle Ben died because a burglar shot him. And Peter was so plagued with guilt because he was not able to save his uncle. But then years later... Peter Parker was able to confront the burglar and he knew that this was the guy who shot his Uncle Ben. And face to face, facing his demons, he masterfully articulated his understanding of power and responsibilities. Let me quote what he said. He said, if I used my power to kill you, I'd be no better than the scum you are. And if I've learned anything, it is that with great power comes great responsibilities, unquote. Here's the thesis. If power is equivalent to inheritance, then the tribes of Benjamin, sorry, the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh 
combined receive the most inheritance and hence receive the most power. Even bigger than Judah, in fact. Let me put this in context. Who are Ephraim and Manasseh? Ephraim and Manasseh are sons of Joseph. So there are 12 sons of Jacob, Jacob being the patriarch. Joseph was the first son from his first love, Rachel. But Joseph went to Egypt when there was a famine, and he lost Joseph for a long time. And, and Joseph had two sons. The first ones were Ephraim and Manasseh, and he had other sons. But when they reunited, in the twilight of his years, Jacob, before he died, gave his blessings to all his sons. And when he gave out the blessings to all his sons, instead of giving the blessing to Joseph, he gave the blessings to the first two sons of jo uh, Joseph, which is Ephraim and Manasseh. What, what he did, in fact, was he adopted the two sons of Joseph to be become his own. Let me read to you Genesis 48. It says, Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply. Every time you hear the phrase fruitful and multiply, you go back to Adam. Adam was the first one whom God said, be fruitful and multiply. And then he repeated that in the time of Noah, be fruitful and multiply. And then he repeated it again in the time of Abraham, be fruitful and multiply. Every time you hear this word, it's God blessing the people. And so now Jacob is saying, God told me, I will make you fruitful and multiply, and I will make you a company of peoples, and I will give you this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now, your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Who are those? Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. Now, Reuben and Simeon are the firstborns of Jacob. And so he adopted Ephraim and Manasseh like his own. That's what he did here. So this is the reason why Ephraim and Manasseh, although they're not originally sons of Jacob, had inheritance in the land of Israel. So you see, if you see the map here, you will see that there is a huge chunk of land that was given to Ephraim and Manasseh. Very interesting. Joshua starts by saying, our text today is Joshua 16 and 17. He starts by saying in chapter 16, The allotment of the people of Joseph went from Jordan by Jericho, east of the waters of Jericho, into the wilderness, going up from Jericho in the hill country to Bethel. Then going from Bethel to Luz, it passes along to Ataroth, the territory of the Archites. Then it goes down westward to the territory of Japlethites, as far as the territory of lower Bethhoron, then to Gezer, and it ends at the sea. And it ends with the people of Joseph, the sons of Joseph or Manasseh and Ephraim, received their inheritance. It's a lot easier if we read this, uh, this passage when we understand the topography of the, ma the map. Uh, it's hard when we don't fully understand this. So one of the things that we can probably do is, is to familiarize ourselves. When you read your Bible, especially, you go to the very back of your Bible, there are maps in there. And sometimes, just for fun, go to the map and look at the map. I mean, you know, you look at the GPS in your cell phones when you drive. You know, just for fun, you know, try this. Let me show you the map. This is the map of the tribes of Jacob. Now, a portion to that, you will see the apportioned allotment of Manasseh and Ephraim, big chunks. So combined, Ephraim and Manasseh received the most inheritance, even bigger than Judah. Now, if inheritance, again, is power, 
Ephraim and Manasseh received the great power with, with or which comes with great responsibilities. They only have one job. Their job was to drive out the Canaanites completely from the land. There's no other job but to drive out the Canaanites completely from the land. Let me go straight to the point. If we summarize what they did, Ephraim and Manasseh, you just go to chapter 16, verse 10, and chapter 17, verses 12 and 13. That's the summary of what they did. How did they go so far with receiving their inheritance? How did they keep their inheritance? Let's start from chapter 16, verse 10. It says, however, now this is very interesting. When you read the narrative and you read, you start by reading, this is what happened, et cetera, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. And then suddenly, however, you have to pause because the narrator is saying something that's very important here. So it says, verse 10, however, they did not drive out the Canaanites who live in Gezer. So the Canaanites had lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day but have been made to do forced labor. Very interesting. What did uh, the tribe of Manasseh do in chapter 17, 12, 13? It says yet, instead of however, the narrators used yet. Yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the land. Now when the people of Israel grew strong, he's talking about the people of Manasseh, they put the Canaanites to do forced labor but did not utterly drive them out. So that means both the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh did not do their job. Their only job was to drive out the Canaanites away from the land. And you can see the problem here right away. It's, it's easy. Now, this is not rocket science. If you have a big chunk of land, if you receive an inheritance, and both of them intentionally did not drive out the Canaanites, did not destroy the Canaanites, Give them a couple of years, and the Canaanites will grow their number once again. And suddenly, one day, they will say, hmm, look at us. We're, uh, we're big in number now. I'm tired of being a slave. Let's fight back. This is what happened to the Canaanites in the time of the judges. Because they grew in number, they fought back the Israelites. But the bigger and more important question is, why did Ephraim and Manasseh did not drive the Canaanites completely? Why did they fail to drive the Canaanites completely? The answer lies in the same text. The Bible said that they put them to forced labor. Very interesting and very practical, I would say. Now, what's the motivation behind putting the Canaanites into forced labor? The Bible did not say, but whatever it is, the Bible was very clear that God intends that the the promised land, the land of Canaan, is only occupied by the Israelites. Keeping the Canaanites inside is never part of God's plan. That's very clear. How do we know that? Deuteronomy chapter 7, 1 and 2, it says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land, this is Moses talking to the generations of Israelites, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of, and clears away many nations before you. And then he mentioned all the Ites, Hittites, Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. That's clear. Complete destruction. In fact, it says, you shall make no covenant with them or show no mercy to them. Why is it that the Israelites are commanded to show no mercy? Because this is God's judgment on the Canaanites. 
for a very long time since the time of Abraham up to now, given that 400 years has lapsed, God has given them ample time to repent from their idolatry, and they did not. And so God is using the Israelites to destroy and judge all the Canaanites in the land. That's why God is saying you have to drive them out. This is judgment. Show them no mercy. But because of their practical wisdom, both the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh put them to forced labor, which violated the direct instruction of God. See, in the modern world, when a person dies and he writes a will of testament, he leaves a will to his children, either by trust or by, by simple will. So a trust is like a sum of money that I give to my children, but has conditions. The condition is like it will only be used for college funds or it will only use for, for something specific. Or a simple will can also have conditions like uh, if I die, I'm going to leave a will to, say, J. Mac and, and die. And I would say, uh, part of the money that you will get is that you will take care of your mom and that you will never put your mom in a nursing care or nursing home. If you do it, then the money will go back to the bank or whatever. It will be distributed somewhere else. It comes with a condition. See, the inheritance of Ephraim Manasseh came with a condition. It came with a condition that is attached to it. One thing is very clear. When a person dies, he gives inheritance. The problem is, if the promised land is an inheritance, the owner of the inheritance, the giver, never dies. God is the giver of the inheritance. He never dies. Therefore, we can say that the land of promise was never given absolutely to the Israelites. It is God's ownership in perpetuity. But the bad news is that the promised land came with conditions. What are the conditions? You find that in Numbers chapter 33. Let me read to you. Here are the conditions of the inheritance of Ephraim and Manasseh. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, so every time you hear the word if, if, that's hypothetical, that's condition, then those of them whom you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and as thorns in your sides. And they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. 56 is, is, is really the clause. And I will do to you as I thought to do to them. If you let them live, the final thing that God will do is I will do to you what I intend in the first place to do to them. What did God intend to do to the Canaanites? To destroy them. What God is saying here is this, your inheritance comes with a condition, and if you do not fulfill your part of the inheritance, I will also destroy you. That's what's saying here, Numbers chapter 33. Let me give you a bigger picture here. If you're reading your Bible, and it seems like a, an enormous book that, you know, you tried to, to read this, and then you tried one chapter in a day, and then after Genesis, you got tired of it. And, you know, for many years you have not completed. Here's how you read the Bible in a big picture. Genesis chapters 1 to 3 is a pattern that is repeated again and again in the book of poetry, in the book of the prophets, in the book of the gospels, in the book of uh, the epistles and revelation. It's repeated again and again. So if you read, and I, I encourage you, Genesis 1 to 3 there is a pattern there which you can sense as you read along all throughout the Bible. Let me give you the, the big picture here. Now, Genesis 1 to 3 is a story of creation. 
Chapter 2 is the story of Adam. Chapter 3 is the story of how they were kicked out from the Garden of Eden. It's not it. That's the story. But then you will find that that story is repeated again and again. So what happened here is that in chapter 1, it says that Adam was taken from the ground. That's why it's, he's called Adam. Adam is from the word Adama. Adama in Hebrew is, is ground. So Adam was taken from the ground. God formed him. The first time God formed him, put in the oven. God forgot, so he became black. No, no, no. That was a folklore. That's not true. So the first time that God did, and there was no second time, God took the man from the ground, he breathed into him a breath of life, and he became a living soul. That's what the Bible said. So Adam became a living soul. It's very interesting because in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, as Adam is the father of the world, all the population in the world, mankind, Adam, Abraham is the father of the nation of Israel. And in Hebrews chapter 11, the author said that Abraham was as good as dead, and yet God gave him the promise of children. What do you mean? So in comparison, what you're saying is that Adam, who was from the ground, dead. Abraham was almost dead, but God brought forth life from both. See, the problem with Abraham is that his wife was barren. The womb was dead. Abraham was old. He's almost as dead. And yet God brought forth a nation out from Abraham, just like how he brought forth the whole population of mankind through Adam. So there's a sort of similarity there. Another one would be where Adam was placed. Chapter 2 says that God placed the man in the garden of Eden. Why? To work it and keep it. Those two words, to work it and keep it. In the same way, Israel was brought from Egypt to the promised land for the two reasons, to work it and keep it. That means they are in charge. It's not just because it's an inheritance. It's because they are in charge to work it and keep it. Now, if there's any similarity is that in Eden, God commanded Adam what to eat and what not to eat. You remember? You can eat from all this tree, but not from this tree, from the garden, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the same way, the Israelites were put in the, in the land of promise, and they were given instructions what to eat and what not to eat. And that's why we guys cannot eat lechon and dinuguan. Exactly, from there from the Benetro. The, that's the similarity here. Both of them were forbidden to eat something because in Adam he will die and in Israel they will be defiled. Another similarity here is their vocation. Now Adam failed in his vocation to keep it and work it. Why? Because he ate of the forbidden fruit thanks to his wife and the serpent. Now because of that, God placed a curse on the ground, he placed a curse on the serpent. Now, very interestingly, in chapter 3, God placed a curse on the serpent. And he said, your seed, the serpent's seed, will have enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So there will be a conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Now, later on, that curse was reflected in Cain. Although Cain was the firstborn of Adam, but he was the first murderer. He murdered his own brother. And so the curse was placed on Cain, like how God placed the curse on the serpent. And later you see in chapter 9 of Genesis that the Canaanites, Cain, Canaanites, were given the curse by Noah. So you see there are two, two seeds here, the righteous seed, the seed of the woman, and the serpent seed, the one that's always 
fight with the seed of the woman has enmity, has conflict. And then when you go to the book of Exodus, you will find that the Israelites are in the land of promise fighting against the Canaanites, the cursed ones. So you see, when they came to the land of promise, it was clear to them, these ones are the cursed people by God, and therefore we have to eliminate them. There should be no truce. There should be no mercy. There should be no putting them to labor because they are enemies. That's how the Bible presents them here. Now, here's a more interesting part. God cursed the serpent, but he also cursed the ground. He never cursed Eve. He never cursed Adam. He cursed the ground. That's what's interesting here is in verse 18. God said, because Adam failed, he said, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Now, very interestingly, I'd like you to observe this. Thorns and thistles. And it seems like Moses picked up on this because when he mentioned Numbers chapter 33, he mentioned the same things. He said in Numbers 33, 55, but if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them whom you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides. Same thing. Apparently, what he's saying is that going back to Adam, the land was cursed and the thorns and thistles will make it difficult for you to live. If you Israelites do not drive out the Canaanites completely, they will make it difficult for you to live there. They will become as thorns and barbs when you dwell in there. Apparently, what Moses is doing is just he's painting a picture of the cursed ground, comparing it to the Genesis chapter 3. So when we read Joshua chapter 16 and 17, the Ephraim and Manasseh, whom, who did not drive out the Canaanites, immediately we see the problem. The problem is repeating back to Genesis chapter 3. And what's fascinating here is that when we read the latter part of the conversation between Joshua and the tribes of Joseph, the people of, the people of Ephraim and Manasseh were complaining, you gave us lands, but the lands are not enough. So here's how Joshua responded to them in verse 15. He said, Joshua said to them, if you're a numerous people, go up by yourselves to the forest and there clear ground for yourselves in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. Now, what is, what is these two Perizzites and Rephaim? What Joshua is saying here is that I've given you lands, but in the lands I gave you, there are still Canaanites, do not ask for more. What you do is to clear up and drive out the Canaanites. That's what you should do because the lands are enough for you. And then he mentioned the Rephaim. The Rephaim is, literally means terrible ones. Why are they terrible according to archaeologists? It's because, well, number one, they are fierce warriors. Number two, because they are giants. Now you heard about last week about the Anakites. They're not just the giants in the land. The Rephaim are also tall people like giants. Interesting, huh? And so what the Bible is saying is that the Ephraimites and the Manasites are not able to push them back because they are afraid of the giants. What's interesting here is that uh, in contrast to that, chapter 17 mentions the daughters of Zelophehad. Do you remember that from the book of Numbers? Now, there's this person from the first generation who did not have sons. He only had five daughters. And when they're about to enter the promised land, he died. His, his five daughters survived him. 
And his five daughters are worried because if they get into the land and they are women, they will not be given inheritance. So they appealed to Joseph and said, we may be women, but we don't want to forget our father. We also deserve some inheritance. So Joseph gave them an inheritance. And Joseph gave them the land of, guess what? Gilead. Very interesting. Now, I would like to remember that. Gilead. This is interesting because it will play a role uh, later on. Now, again, chapter 17, verse 17. Joshua reminds the people of Ephraim and Manasseh. Then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, you are a numerous people and you have great power. There should be no excuse for you to have more lands and to not push back or drive out the Canaanites from the land. What you're supposed to do is to drive them out. Now their excuse is this in verse 16, Joshua 17, 16. And the people of Joseph said, the hill country is not enough for us. Yet all the Canaanites who dwell in the plain have chariots of iron, both those in Bethshan and its villages and those in the valley of Jezreel. Now, chariots in, during that time uh, is a rarity. The, the people of Israel, because they live in the hill country, they don't have chariots. They were not permitted to own horses. But the people in Bethshan have iron chariots. It's like uh, probably the equivalent of the Abrams M1 tanks. So these guys, the Canaanites, have the latest technology in warfare, like what's happening in Ukraine and Russia right now. The Russia has all the, the hardware they brought forth. And, and the Ukrainians are you know, asking for more from the allied, uh, from the United States and other countries. And so at this point, the people of Bethshan have this. And so the, the people of Ephraim and Manasseh are complaining. Now, here's what I want you to do. I'd like to remember Bethshan is where the Canaanites dwell. They have iron chariots. I'd like you to remember also Gilead. Gilead is a hill country who, which was given to the daughters of Zelophehad. I would suppose that the daughters of Zelophehad took some men within the tribe and went up to Gilead and occupied the land. It's just like Caleb who occupied Hebron. He's just a one person with probably a small number of army. He occupied one fortress. These women, these girls, five of them, took some men and, and occupied Gilead. Interesting. Now, why am, I, why am I asking you to remember this? Bethshan and Gilead. Because years later, in the history of Israel, they will have their first king. Who was their first king again? Saul. Saul was the first king. Saul reigned for 42 long years. It was not good. Why? Because he violated the direct instruction of God many times. And God disowned him. And in that 42 long years... Uh, the land of Israel was not put in a good administration. At the end of his career, he fought the Amalekites. And there's one story where he brought his army in Mount Gilboa to position themselves among, against the Amalekites. Very interesting. And when they were on top of Mount Gilboa, the Amalekites were too huge, too many, that they overpower the Israelite army. And three of the sons of Saul... Uh, died in battle and he was also uh, shot with arrows and when he saw that all his sons died in battle the king committed suicide 
The next day, the Bible said, 1 Samuel 31, the next day, when the Philistines came to strip, to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. Now, good news to the enemy, but bad news for the people of Israel. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth. Ashtaroth is an idol. And they fastened his body to the wall of what? Bethshan. What is Bethshan again? This is the place where the Ephraimites and the Manasites did not drive out the Canaanites in, during their time. Verse 11, but when the inhabitants of Jabesh, what is Jabesh again? Jabesh Gilead is the fortress that the daughters of Zelophe had took over. Interesting. When the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men, and I'm supposing that these valiant men were the descendants of the daughters of Zelophehad. All the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and buried them there. Now, Mount Gilboa is in the territory of Manasseh. You see, if centuries ago, during the time of Joshua, had they followed God to the dot, there won't be any Philistines. There won't be any fortress in Bethshan. There won't be any temple of Ashtaroth. Instead, the descendants of the daughter of had took the risk to take down and rescue the bodies of Saul and his sons. Why? Because they understood better what occupying the land means, what having an inheritance means. With great power comes great responsibilities. But Ephraim and Manasseh put them to forced labor. Now, does this sound familiar? Yes, it is. It does. Because in Egypt, when the Pharaoh cannot defeat all the Israelites, he put them to forced labor. They knew better, so they learned from history. So the Israelites put the Ephraim, sorry, put the Canaanites to do forced labor. Their willingness to drive out the Canaanites completely was part of their part of convenience. Why? Because they didn't have to fight anymore. They didn't have to risk their lives. Maybe they're thinking we have to cut the Canaanites some slack. Let them live. Let them maybe pay taxes. Let them become our slaves. No one else has to die. Everybody wins. That's called convenience. Let's talk about cancer and tumors. Not, not a good uh, thing to talk about, but a tumor is a mass or group of abnormal cells formed in the body, and they have no particular use. See, moles are kind of tumors. They have no particular use. When they don't interfere with the bodily function, we, the doctors call them benign. But when they interfere with bodily function, the doctors call them malignant or life-threatening. Now, the doctors classify them now from tumors to cancer. According to statistics, about 10 million people die from cancer each year. About one out of six people die out of cancer each year. In the U.S. alone, there are 600,000 deaths per year. From 2000 up to the present, the statistics dropped to about 27% because of the leading cure and the popularization of surgery and chemotherapy. Now, chemotherapy therapy is, is very effective. What chemotherapy does is the doctor injects a powerful drug to kill 
the cancer cells. And sometimes, because it's too powerful, it also kills the other healthy cells in the body. I know it's not fair comparison, but the land of promise is like a body. God sent the Israelites like a powerful drug, chemotherapy, to eject, to kill all the Canaanites in the land. That's how you understand this. But what happens when the chemotherapy fails? We call this stage four. It's unrecoverable. What happens when the Israelites fail to do their duty? It's called exile. So God said in Numbers chapter 33, the condition is clear. I will do to you what I intend to do to them. To kick you out from the promised land. It's not surprising, after many centuries, Jesus came and picked up on this. He went to the temple and he saw the money changers. And he kicked them out, drive them out. It's an exact phrase. Drive them out from the temple. But then he said this, quoting from Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 11, he said this. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Have you made it a den of robbers? Now, Jeremiah originally used it because he was accusing then in his time the people of Israel who are doing, worshiping idols, and yet they're going to the temple and say, we are secure. I may be worshiping the idol next door, but I'm also worshiping Yahweh. And so Jeremiah is accusing them, this is not right. So in chapter 7, verses 13 to 15, he said, God is talking to Jeremiah. He said, when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. What? And when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that's called by my name in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh. What happened to Shiloh? Verse 15 says, I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen and all the offspring of Ephraim. What God is talking here is the exile. See, the phrase cast out is very specific here because when you read the Gospels, Jesus would only use the, the phrase cast out whenever it pertains to demons. He will cast out evil spirits, unclean spirits, the demons. The demons are not supposed to be dwelling in the land. Only the holy people are supposed to be dwelling in the land. And yet there are so many demons and evil spirits dwelling in the land of Canaan. Why? Because of worshiping idols. And so Jesus, whenever he would cast out demons, he would use this word, cast out. And yet in the time of Jeremiah, God already used the word, the phrase, cast out. As if he's saying, the people of Ephraim does not belong anymore to the promised land because they have violated my commandment to them. The people of Ephraim has become like the Canaanites. They have become cancer to the body. They must be taken out. Again, Jesus picked up on this when he spoke to his disciples regarding a parable. Now, you may know this. This is called the parable of the talent. There's this master who said, one day, I'm going to go back to the Philippines. I'm going to spend one month. Uh, that's just kidding, not in the Philippines. In a faraway country, I'm going to go and spend a month or so. But when I come back, he told the servants, I will, I'm expecting you to do something for me. So he gave them talents. One talent, three talents, five talents, so on and so forth. Every one of his servants was expected to invest the talents so that when the master comes back, he will, you know, have something in return. But this one guy who received one talent said, this is not right. 
I'm, I'm so afraid that if I lose this, my master will be angry and something will happen to me. So what he did, he dug in the ground, he buried the talent, and he said, sitting pretty, guaranteed. When the master comes back, it's still the same. So when the master comes back, he was so disappointed. And he used two words to describe this servant. He said, slothful and evil, or sometimes slothful and wicked, lazy and wicked. But then he said, very interestingly, he said, he will be cast out, but Matthew chapter 25, verse 30. He said, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, cast out means like a cancer, you will have to be taken out. This servant, because he did not do what he's supposed to do, he violated his master's trust, will be cast out as worthless into the outer darkness. And you're supposing this is night because there's, there's outer darkness outside the house. But that's the idea of the afterlife that Jesus is trying to paint for his disciples. Now, when, I, when he said this, I cannot help but think of what happened in 722 BC when the Assyrians came over to, to Israel, Samaria, and took all the people in exile and brought them to Iran in some part in Syria. Cast out into the art of darkness, away from the inheritance, away from the presence of God. What does this have to do with us? If there's anything that resembles us about inheritance, is this. Following Jesus is not just going to church on Sundays. What, why do I mean by that? I would suppose there's a, a, a story in Matthew 24 that in the last days, Jesus said, people will tell me, uh, I preached, I followed you, I even cast out demons, and Jesus would say, I don't know you. So I would say in the same way, that in the last days, people will come to Jesus and say, I went to church every Sunday. In fact, I never missed going to church on my birthday, Thanksgiving, Easter, Christmas, you name it. I was in church. But maybe Jesus will say, I don't know you. Or maybe in the last days, people will come to Jesus and say, I donated money to the church. In fact, it reflects in my tax returns. But maybe Jesus will say, I don't know you. Why is that? Because discipleship is about following Jesus. It's not just about attending church on Sunday. Following Jesus is an everyday, lifelong commitment to obey Him, whether we feel like or not, whether it's convenient or not, whether it's raining or not. It doesn't depend on our mood. It doesn't depend on our budget. It doesn't depend on the season of the year. See, it's about discipleship. I think it's a mistake to think that since people were introduced to the faith and they prayed the prayer of acceptance and they think our future is secure, we can kick back and relax, it's, it's guaranteed. I think it's the other way around. Because every time I read the passage in the New Testament that pertains to believers, it always carries a tone of perseverance. You have to continue, you have to continue. Even in fact, Hebrews chapter 11 says, do, do not neglect coming together or gathering together for worship. Because this is one of the responsibilities that we have. With great power comes great responsibilities. Now, what's interesting here is that in the New Testament, we're familiar with the phrase, God bless you. We always say it, God bless you. But what does it mean? What do we mean when we say God bless you? See, in the first century Christianity, when they say God bless you, it's different from how we say God bless you today. 
when they say God bless you, it's always in the context of Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes. What does it say, Matthew 5? It says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, because during the time of Jesus and the, you know, the centuries after, they were heavily persecuted. And so when the people say blessed, it's in this context. Verse 11 says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That's how you're blessed. When they say bless, God bless you, they're not saying, may you have a good and easy life. They're not saying, may you be healed from your sickness. They're not saying, may you find a suitable partner in life. They're not saying, may God go easy on you and give you and make you prosperous. That's not the context of God bless you in the first century Christianity. God bless you is like saying, may God grant you the endurance to withstand persecution. May God bless you. May God give you patience when your neighbors start yelling at you and calling you names and start a false campaign against you because of your faith. When they say, God bless you, it's like saying, may God comfort you when the woke community starts making fun of your convictions about truth, about beauty, about family and values. When they say, God bless you, it's like saying, may God encourage you when you get canceled on social media or if you lose a job for what you believe. God bless you. That's the context of God bless you. And for us followers of Jesus, how does it look like to literally receive an inheritance to receive an inheritance to be blessed according to Matthew chapter 5 verse 12 to the very end of those he said rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven you see what they're saying is that we may not have a portion in the land of Israel a huge real estate materials that we can possess but ultimately we have a great reward that is not here but in heaven because the ultimate security, the ultimate comfort, the ultimate inheritance is to be with Jesus. This is what kept his 12 disciples faithfully. This is what the first century believers died for. And this is what inspired countless of generations of believers to stick to their faith, to remain faithful. See, following Jesus is never meant to be easy. If it's easy, then it's, many people would have done it. Following Jesus is never meant to be easy and convenient. But when it comes to reward, the Bible said you will have a very great reward. That's our inheritance. And that reward, you can expect later. Not now. Not now. If we have, if we have reward here on earth, what more are we going to receive in heaven? Rewards, brothers and sisters, is later. Not now. Let's pray. Father, once again, we thank you. We thank you for reminding us that we have a great inheritance in you and we have this great responsibility to act accordingly. Father, I pray that although we may be facing difficulties in life, maybe sickness, maybe the difficulty of trying to find a good job that pays off, maybe a difficulty with relationships, Father, I pray that you will allow us to open our minds and our hearts that we can be encouraged because there is a reward waiting for us in heaven if we persevere in faith. 
remind us, Father, again, there's only one ultimate security, and it's to be in you, to rest in you, to rest, to rest in the shadow of your grace. Father, bless us in Jesus' name.